I can pick up on what Regina just said about not wanting to go from Oklahoma to Wyoming or Washington. Um, there's a song that used to go, please don't send me to Africa. And uh, I'm going to tell you a story about Africa. I went to Africa in 1975. I was a 22-year-old, and I had never been anywhere to speak of. And here I went to this uh, place that was in the middle of nowhere. Um, the country I went to was one of the smallest countries in the world. It was extremely um, uh, poor, still one of the poorest countries in the world. I think they live on a little bit more than a dollar a day to this day, time right now, which um, you children are far richer than anyone, hardly in the whole country. When I arrived there, in that country, they had one airplane in the whole country, and it only showed up every other day. The airport was way smaller than this building we're in, not building, this room, way smaller. Like about a third of this room was the whole airport for the whole country. And where I was, was out in the deep, deep bush, where there was nothing, only dirt roads. And when it rained, they were mud roads. There weren't any roads. You couldn't get there. And so that's where I was for three years of my life. Well, this week I did something interesting. I went to my uh, Google Maps, and I found where I was. In fact, the very house that I lived in, I went there on Google. It was amazing. I had to, it took me a long time to find it because it's in the middle of nowhere in this little country, and there I saw my house. And then I did something that I bet you've done with Google. You see where you used to live, and then you start to zoom out. You zoom out a little bit, and then I saw the roads, and then I saw, oh, Oh, they actually had um, paved roads somewhere. And then I saw Southern Africa, and then a little bit more of Africa, and then I saw the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean, and soon the whole continent of Africa, and then soon Europe and the Mediterranean, and pretty soon you got far enough out that you just saw this globe there, this globe where all seven billion of us live. Because we zoomed out to, I guess, to a satellite somewhere, looking at the, the planet on which we live. Started with this little tiny house in the middle of nowhere, in one of the smallest countries in the world, and you zoomed out till you saw the whole planet. And I guess if you zoomed out from the perspective of God, you'd see solar system and all of the stars. It would be amazing what God sees, because we, of course, can see through the Hubble telescope and other telescopes these days what's out there, and it's absolutely magnificent. Well, today, we're going to do a little bit of zooming as well. We're going to start by starting with us. And we're going to start with the theme of suffering, because that's where the Apostle Paul left off last week in chapter 8. He said, you know, if we, want to, if we want to be close to Christ, we have to know how to suffer with him. Not a real pleasant theme, but we're going to start with suffering, and then we're going to start to zoom out. As God looks at that subject from his perspective, not our perspective. And he's going to get bigger until we get to the perspective where we see, whoa, he's up to something. And then when you see what he's up to, and eventually you get this incredibly huge perspective when you zoom out and see our lives from God's perspective. And when you do that, what you're going to see is absolutely amazing. And so today we're going to do the second half 
of what is considered by many the most important chapter in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 8. Now, what we're going to do today, our topic is, it's going to end with, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. That's an incredible theme. Nothing. And you think, well, there's something that could do it. Well, we're going to see the list. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Remember, we ended last time, there, we started last time with, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now we're going to end today with, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. But we're going to do it by doing three things. We're going to start with the number three, then we're going to move to the number five, and then we're going to move to the number seven. Three. He begins with the subject of suffering. So the Apostle Paul is going to write, we suffer now. And he's going to use the word groan. He said, our sufferings cause us to groan, but there are three entities that are groaning. The creation is groaning. We as Christians are groaning. And the Holy Spirit is groaning. We'll have to see what that's all about. We're groaning because we have a sense of what good and right should be, but we live in a world in which that's not reality. It is never as good as you think it could or should be. Never. And when something is not as good as you think it should be, what do you do? Well, if you're an honest person, you groan. And we're going to first look at three groans. But then we're going to look after that, at five links. Because some have called the next section the golden chain. God is going to take us from where he began a relationship with us until he's going to bring us to the place where he changes us into a resurrection body called glorification. And there are five links in this chain. We're going to look at the five links. And then we're going to end with the number seven. He's going to end this incredible passage with seven questions, but you could call them seven assurances. He's going to end with, these are things you can be assured of. These are things you can be, you can take them to the bank. These are seven things. So three, and then five, and then seven. So here's our text. No separation. Romans chapter 8. Let's start at verse 18. We're going to begin now with the first of the three groans. And this groan is the groan of creation. Here's what it says. This is verses 18 to 22. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage and to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, we live in a culture today in which you hardly have to convince anyone on our planet that this planet is a mess. Everyone knows that. It is the most, it is the most 
loud cry in our world today, the loudest cry everywhere in our world today is the cry of global Okay, you all know what it is. There's not a country you will go to today in this world, not one, not a single one, where that cry is not heard by almost everyone. What does that say? The planet isn't right. It's messed up. Now, who caused this mess? We obviously have had some part in that. What's the res Why is it that way? We don't know completely, but everyone in our world agrees that this planet is messed up. Now, you might say, well, no, it's not. Well, have you ever been through a hurricane? How about a tornado, a tsunami, earthquake? Have you ever been in any of those and seen the damage done by them? When you do, you say, hey, this is messed up. Or where you have incredible flooding, as we've had even a little tiny bit in, in Riverton yesterday. There's flooding all over. Fires, forest fires, just ripping the west of our country apart. You can't even see the mountains from where I live in Colorado because of all the smoke that's there. This planet is messed up. And that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that because of our sin, so in, if you want to ask somebody, any scientist, what's the cause of the, the planet being all weird and messed up? The theological answer is us. Have you ever read the Holy Scriptures? The Holy Scripture says that when God made this planet and put all of this life on it, he made us in his image. And he gave us the task of being stewards of his creation. Not masters, not rip-off artists, not rapists. Stewards. A steward is somebody who knows that you don't own it, but you are supposed to take care of it. That's a steward. The Bible is crystal clear. And by the way, if you are a Christian, and I assume hopefully all of us are, we are by God designed to be the greatest, not the worst, the best stewards of our planet. Why? Because God told us to. Now, I don't care what kind of a steward you are. I don't care how good you are. Sin has messed up the planet. It's twisted it. And so the planet is groaning. There is not a, such a thing as a stethoscope that can listen to the heart of a tree. But if there was, and we could take a spiritual stethoscope and attach it to a rock or attach it to a tree or attach it to a hippopotamus, what you'd hear is, oh, they'd be groaning. Why? Because they are not what they were designed to be. Can you imagine what this creation that has been messed up by sin would look like if sin hadn't messed it up? Can you imagine? <laughs> it would be incredible. And one day the Bible says God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. It will be so incredible we can't even imagine. I think it's beautiful right now. But it's nothing next to what it was designed to be or what it will be. And part of our sufferings on this planet are because of the planet is, is subject to frustration. It's groaning. It's not what it was intended by God to be. And so the Bible tells us that in the past, creation has been affected by human sin. And in the present, creation is groaning. But one day, creation will be liberated. It will be set free. The groaning will stop. 
A man named Leon Morris, who is a, 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 a man who's passed away now, a commentator. This is interesting. He said this. Remember, this sounds totally different than our culture. Creation is not undergoing death pangs, but birth pangs. You see, you mothers who have given birth, as you know, before you do so, it is very, very painful. And you groan. The Bible teaches that this planet is, is groaning like a mother in, in the process of birth. And what comes out of that groaning? Glory. A child. So actually, we often think this planet is, is dying. But what the Bible says is, no, this planet is about to give birth. It's about ready to be renewed into God's glory. And we are its stewards. So the creation groans. But now it's going to also say that we as Christians, we groan too. So let's look at now verses 23 to 25. Not only so, not only the creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption, our adoption to sonship, the re redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. As Christians... God has given us, the day we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And so we have a little tiny taste from God himself as to what holiness, goodness, perfection looks like and feels like. And if you have a little tiny sense of what perfection looks like, feels like, and by the way, people say, well, I'm not perfect. I want to go, what? Of course you're not. You're not even in the ballpark of perfect. None of us are in the ballpark. So when we say that, well, um, I, you know, you go to a, a, a restaurant and you hear it all the time. How, you, how, how are things today? Oh, perfect. What? You don't know what that word means. Perfect means everything is exactly the way it was designed to be. But as Christians who have a little taste of the Holy Spirit inside of us, we have a little sense of what holiness looks like, of what absolute goodness looks like, of what eternity looks like, because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have a little taste of what love looks like, and joy looks like, and, and patience looks like, and peace looks like. But guess what? We don't have it yet. We don't even have hardly any of it yet. We've got a little tiny, tiny piece. It's like if you've got this... I had mangoes yesterday, and you had just a little tiny taste of a mango, and it's so good, but it's only a taste. Oh, it's so much better. And so what do we do as Christians who have a little tiny taste of the Holy Spirit inside of us, but we know it's not here yet. This body still screams, sin to me. My emotions are not Pure. I am nowhere near perfect. I'm not even close to holiness, but I have a taste of what it looks like because of the Holy Spirit inside of me. And what does that produce? When you know what perfection looks like, a little bit, you have a little sense of it, and you know you aren't there, what do you do? Oh, you groan. Here's what um, 
a man named Douglas Moo wrote, once the spirit with his demand for holiness enters our lives, we sense as never before just what God wants us to be. As a result, the spirit increases our frustration at not meeting God's standard and our yearning to be what he wants us to be because we aren't there yet and we aren't even close to being there. So presently, in the past tense, God justified us and gave us a sense of hope. And in the present tense, we groan as we wait. But the day will come when sin will be eliminated. We will be glorified in a resurrection body. And then we won't need hope anymore because our hope will be realized. But there's a third groan. This is the surprising one. In the same way, creation groans. In the same way, we groan. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. So God's groaning. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Wow. What does that mean? Well, it told us we don't know what we ought to pray for. You ever been there? Hopefully you are all the time. I've noticed here at this church and every church I've ever been in, if you look at what we pray for, 90 plus percent of all of our prayers are for physical things. Have you noticed? They're almost all, almost, almost 100% about physical things. Sicknesses, deaths, that's what most of our prayers are. Now, if you look in the Bible, you realize that most prayers are not for that. Very few actually are for that. Most are not, but almost all of ours are. And you could say rather piously, oh, we should align our prayers with what God's word says. And I say, don't bother. You know why? Because there's somebody groaning for us. The Holy Spirit, God knows what we really need. He knows what we really want. He knows what is in the best interest of us. And so he is constantly sensing our pain, groaning, and interceding for us. There's freedom. Yes, we should come to God with the screams of our bodies because that's what we most focus on as human beings. We don't know what we, 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 we ought to pray for. But if you look in the Bible, the Bible says Jesus prays for us. And the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit prays for us. Someone said this, Philip Yancey, the famous writer, he wrote this. As Paul sees it, since Adam's fall, the planet and all its inhabitants have been emitting a constant stream of low-frequency distress signals. If you could tap the human heart, if you could tap a tree, if you could trap even the, the heart of the Holy Spirit, we're all going, It's not here yet. So 
how do we view suffering? Many people say, well, suffering's bad luck. You got a bad roll of the dice, or you were dealt a bad hand. Or if people say, well, this is what our society does. If you, if you suffer, you say, well, who's at fault? Somebody's got, it's got to be somebody's fault. You've got to sue somebody. Somebody's responsible for your suffering. Or some people say, well, it's bad karma. What goes around comes around, and you get what you deserve. Others would say they're Pollyannas. They'd say, well, we all need to be happy. Let's be happy. Or the Stoics back in ancient Greece, they just said, well, put, up, put a stiff upper lip. But this is what God says. 2 Corinthians 4. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Well, groaning is good. It's good to groan. In fact, it's very healthy to groan because when you groan, you realize that this isn't it yet. This isn't heaven. And that's one of the keys of a Christian worldview is that we recognize that there's more to life than these number of years that we get here. There's more, much more. And so we groan in the process, but we groan with joy. But now the Apostle Paul is going to turn to what uh, is sometimes called the five are God's golden chain. And in God's golden chain, we're going to look at five links in God's golden chain. But he's going to begin by this summary statement, one of the best known statements in the whole Bible, though often misinterpreted, that tells what God is up to. And here it is. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Now look at that very carefully. It does not say that all things are good, because that's a lie. Many things in this world are evil and bad. And it does not say that all things tend toward good in and of themselves, for that's naive. That's not true. It does not promise that if you've lost your job today, tomorrow God will give you an even better job. It doesn't promise you that. Or don't be upset about your fiancé breaking off your engagement because God will provide an even better partner for you. That's baloney, but it's holy baloney. We, we, we like that kind of baloney sometimes. Um, and it's not to be applied in materialistic terms. That's the way we think. Well, we think in terms of money and stuff and temporal things. And by the way, this does not apply to all people. Did you see it? It says, God is works things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It does mean this. God uses suffering to build Christian character in us, to conform us to become more like Christ and to prepare us for the ultimate glorification of our bodies. God uses suffering for good. Again, this is Douglas Moo. Listen to how he writes. He says it. Nothing will touch our lives that is not under the control and direction of our loving Heavenly Father. 
Everything we do and say, everything people do to us or say about us, every experience that we'll, we will ever have, all are sovereignly used by God for our good. We will not always understand how the things we experience work for good, and we certainly will not always enjoy them. But we do know that nothing comes into our lives that God does not allow and use for his own beneficent purposes. Even our sins are part of God's plan. You've probably seen a, a tapestry. I've seen many of them in lives. And when you look at a tapestry from one perspective, it's just absolutely beautiful. But have you ever seen the backside of a tapestry? It's a, a mess. All these strings, they don't seem to make any sense at all. I remember one time I was in Egypt and I went to some people who were making tapestries and there was a master tapestry artist who put together the design and then the worker bees who actually carried it out. Sometimes the worker bees would make a mistake and you would think that the master artist would say, well, take out those, all those strings and start here and make it right, but he wouldn't. What the, mas what the master would do is say, stop Stop right now for a while. And he would look at that, at that tapestry and say, he would then incorporate the mistake into a pattern that was extremely beautiful. That's what God does. God is the one who sees the beautiful picture. We only see the backside with all those knots and all those mistakes. But God is working them all into a tapestry so beautiful, we can't even imagine. That's what he does. Now, how does he do it? Well, here's how he do it. He does it. Here's his chain. Here it goes. For those who God foreknew. Let's start right there. It all begins with foreknowledge. Now, foreknowledge is something that's saying, oh, well, God knew who was going to be saved and who wasn't. And that's, uh, that's a, a debate we're not going to deal with. But God had a plan to make a relationship with us. That's where it begins. There's the first link. God had a plan to, to establish a relationship with us. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Predestined means that um, he had a purpose. So God decided to have a relationship with us. And what's his purpose? So they could be conformed to the image of, sons, of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So God began a relationship with us. And the purpose of that relationship, the second link, was so that he could change us to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. That's, the, that's what he predestined. And then the third thing he did is those he predestined, he called. And one of the uniquenesses of Christianity, there's nothing like this in any other world religion, is we don't seek God. God seeks us. We don't find God. God finds us. We don't call out for God. God calls out for us. So the third link in the chain is, it all began with God's desire to have a relationship with people like us made in his image. And then he did that because he wants to conform us to be increasingly in character and behavior like his son. So what did he do? He called us. Tom, not on the telephone. Tom, I want you. 
And he's going to have a million different ways. Some people he called the baseball bat. One of those he called that way is called the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote this. Remember, he's on his way to kill Christians. And God knocked him off his donkey, blinded his eyes, and out of heaven said, Paul, Paul, you're an idiot. Who are you persecuting? I don't know. You're persecuting me, Jesus. That's how he got him. Paul did not want to be a Christian. He was going to kill Christians. It's like God turning Osama bin Laden into the great Christian evangelist, Billy Graham. That's what he did. That's what he did with the Apostle Paul. God has a lot of ways of calling, but Paul never called for God. God called for him. Paul did not seek God. God sought him. Paul did not try to find God. God found him. And he's done the same with us. So now the third link is he calls us. And then once he calls us, what does he do? He justifies us. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross for our sins, paid all the penalty for our sins so that when we stand before the bar of God's justice, God looks at us through the righteousness of Jesus and says, innocent. All of our sin has been paid in full. And the last step, glorification. Those he justified, he eventually changes us and gives us a resurrection body that there's no more sin anymore. We don't have to fight with sin ever again. That's God's incredible golden chain. That's what he's up to with us. And so what's the, and by the way, did you see how this golden chain is put together? Can we go back just a couple of verses there? Um, thanks, Dakota. And, and just, now, now, let me, and look at, look at the, Look at the pronouns. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes us with the, in accordance with the will of God. And then it goes on. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And here we go. Here's the chain. For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You see what's holding the whole link, the, all the chain links together? He, him, God, not me. It doesn't say, and I did this, and I did that, and I did this. No, he did it. It's God's golden chain, not ours. Well, he ends this incredible passage with seven assurances. In these next verses, you're going to see seven questions. And with each one is an assurance. What then shall we say in response to these things? There's the first question. And what has he just talked about? He's just talked about how God is working all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And God is going to take us from the place where he knew us in relationship and glorifies us. What can we say in, in, to these things? The first assurance is that in Christ ones can be assured that God is up to great good. He is up to good. We never have to worry about the dark side of the force. We don't have to worry about Darth Vader because God is all good. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is, happens when Moses and God are having a conversation. It's in the book of uh, Exodus. And, and Moses says, hey God, I, could you show me uh, your glory? God says, oh, no, Moses can't do that. I'd vaporize you. Um, and I don't want to vaporize you. 
But God says, here's what I'll do. I'm going to let my goodness pass in front of you, and then I'll tell you what my name is. And God hides him behind a rock, and then God passes by. And remember, this is all subsumed under the, God says, this is my goodness. And here's what God said. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who forgives sin, iniquity, and rebellion. And on he goes. God says, this is who I am. And all of that is part of God's goodness. The first assurance is that we don't have to worry because we can be assured that God is up to good. And the second assurance, if God is for us, who can be against us. So those who are in Christ can be assured that God is for us. He's not against us. We sing that song, God is for me, not against me. So often we think as human beings on this planet that God's against me. He's got the baseball bat. He wants to hurt me, wants to judge me, wants to send me to bad places. No, God is for us, not against us. And it goes on. Here's the third one. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God is willing to sacrifice his own son for our well-being, the most precious person in the whole universe, the cosmos, well, there's nothing he wouldn't sacrifice for us. So the third assurance is, in Christ, ones can be assured that if God gave the supreme gift of his son to save us, he will most certainly give us everything we need in this life. We can be assured of that. And it goes, here's the next question. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Christians can be assured that charges brought by anyone or anything against God's chosen will not stand. Why not? Who's the judge? God. What's the next statement? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So who is Jesus? In the context of a court, who is he? He's our lawyer. He's our lawyer. And God is the judge, and Jesus, our lawyer, is God's son. We got it made in the shade. I mean, you can't get a better scenario than that in any court of law. We can be assured that there are that charges brought by anyone or anything against God's chosen will not stand. Why? Well, let's go on. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? We can be assured that Christ's unconditional love is immutable. Can trouble or hardship or famine or nakedness or danger or a sword? No, all of these circumstances cannot remove us from the care and the love of God. Then why? Well, the next verse, as it is written, he's quoting the Psalms. This is Psalm 44, 22. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long and are considered sheep to be slaughtered. 
Suffering has always been a part of the experience of human beings and especially Christians. It's a natural and, and even an expected part of a normal life on planet Earth. But here's how it ends. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So now look at this. Here, for I am convinced. And now here's 10 things, since we're into numbers today. <laughs> for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, and I think we're part of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's excluded from that list? Nothing. Nothing at all. God is for us. No one can justifiably accuse us. And nothing can separate us. When I was a freshman in college in 1970, I, um, I was taking a class in sociology at Wheaton College. And one of our projects back then is we had to go into inner city Chicago and attend Operation PUSH. PUSH is an acronym, People United to Save Humanity. And the leader of this Operation PUSH was Jesse Jackson, the, the famous one. And of course, as you can tell, my skin color is white and the people at Operation PUSH were almost 100% almost black. But me, myself, and some of my classmates went to Operation PUSH. And I'll never forget what happened. Oh, we were treated, by the way, extremely well. Jesse Jackson walked out on the stage. And this is what he did. He turned to the audience and says, I am! And everyone shouts back at him, I am! Somebody! Well, somebody. I am! I am. Somebody. I may be poor, but I am! Somebody. I may have been in jail, but I am somebody. And he went on and on and on into this fever pitch. Why was he doing this? He was doing this with a group of people who, was, who thought, eh, you're not much. You're not worth much. You've done things wrong. People don't treat you like they should. And he's trying to say, no, no, no. This is not who you really are. You need to tell yourself who you really are. Because that's the root that you need to change. And so, would you please stand with me? And I am, whether you like him or not, I don't care. I'm going to be Jesse Jackson. Please stand. And all you have to do is repeat after me. The penalty of my sin has been paid in full. The power of sin has been broken. The death of sin cannot doom me. I decide to serve the Lord. Not the devil. Jesus fulfilled the law so that I am free to bear fruit for Jesus. I am an ambassador for Christ's kingdom. I acknowledge the battle with the flesh. I 
But his mercies are new every morning. I choose to set my mind on the things of the Spirit. I listen to and let the Holy Spirit lead my life. I rest in the assurance that nothing can separate me from the love of God. I am a Christian. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this incredible passage of your word that we can hardly do justice to. But better than doing justice to the understanding is would your Holy Spirit weasel it into our lives, into our minds, into our hearts, so that we become who you've called us and paid an incredible price to buy us to be. So we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated because we're not done yet this morning. Um, we're now going to take this opportunity to help remind ourselves of the truths we've just been looking at from God's Word through a very simple act, but very significant. It came to us from Jesus himself. Just before he died, within hours of his crucifixion, horrible, 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 he was together with his disciples in one of the most emotionally laden conversations you could ever imagine. And while they were eating the Passover feast, Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified, but I will rise again from the dead. And I don't want you to ever forget what I'm about to do for you. And so he took some of the bread at the meal and he distributed it to his disciples. And he said, this bread now is going to represent my body, which is going to be really messed up, broken. But in that body, like your body, I am going to pay for all of your sin because I am God in human flesh. And then he took the cup the cup of one of the, the cups of wine that was at the table. And he said, now this cup, which looks like blood, is going to be a blood covenant. And this now is going to represent my death for you. And I don't want you to ever forget it. So what we're about to do is very solemn. And who is invited? Perfect people? No. If you're perfect, I'd suggest you go somewhere else this morning. And don't partake because you've got a dishonesty problem. Saints, oh yes, come join us. Because this is for those whose salvation has been procured by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the grave. If you affirm the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, come join us at the table. Elders, would you please come forward? and distribute the elements. <laughs>